You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I thought that I would shake things up a bit and do something a bit differently today by sharing an episode of a new podcast that I've been enjoying. It's called Car Show, and it's hosted by Eddie Alterman, a longtime editor at Car and Driver, and he's the chief brand officer at Hearst Autos. Eddie thinks that all cars are great, even the awful ones, but as you know, some cars transcend their carness and they have a story to tell. On Car Show, he shares the stories of the vital cars that have changed how we drive and live, the ones whose significance lies outside the scope of horsepower or miles per gallon. Now, if you've been listening to my show for a while, you've probably figured out I don't have much knowledge about cars, and I'm quite certain that no car I've ever owned will be considered a classic. Yet I have to say that I really enjoyed listening to Car Show, and that's because it tells the backstories on cars without being techie. It's kind of like what I do on my podcast, but as the title says, Car Show is focused on cars. The episode of Car Show that I've chosen for today is about a specific car that changed World War II and has had a lasting impact even to this day. The Jeep Wrangler was created in the 1940s to serve on the battlefield, you know, gliding into France on D-Day and slogging through the bulge. Yet today, you're more likely to find Jeeps cruising down the Jersey Shore than on the front lines of battle, but they still remain true to their military roots. Eddie talks about how the out-of-date Jeep, you know, certainly one of the most American cars of all time, manages to still sell so well. Okay, so here's a preview of Car Show from our friends at Pushkin Industries. And I have to tell you, I really did enjoy this one. It's a great story, so I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. And of course, you can hear more of Car Show wherever you get your podcasts. So let's take a listen. Listen to that. Okay, that's 90. Let's not do that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, But I didn't even feel us make the acceleration almost. It just like jumped so softly sprung that it just kind of rears back up when you accelerate and all the mass loads they all shift to the back you're like whoa (laughs) my sunglasses just just (laughs) flew to the back of my head no joke that's how quick that just went that was me our editor jen guerra and our producer sam dingman going 90 miles an hour in a 55 zone flouting the speed limit and common sense Even dumber, we're at the wheel of a hot rod Jeep, the Wrangler Rubicon 392. 
It is so named because it comes stuffed with a huge 392 cubic inch Hemi V8 engine, making 470 horsepower in a chassis ill-equipped to deal with that kind of brute force. The regular Jeep is handful enough on the highway. This roided up 392, it's enough to pull the sunglasses right off your head. This is a muscle car engine in a Jeep. Did you see how the whole thing was rocking up and down? <laughs> I'm Eddie Alterman, and this is Car Show. I've been an automotive journalist since I was 19 years old, and I've driven nearly every car that's been made since then. Three decades, driving some 250 new cars a year. The math is shocking even to me. For this last decade, I was the editor-in-chief of Car and Driver, the world's largest car magazine. I spent my entire life around cars and the people who make them. I think all cars are great, even the awful ones. I'm a fan of the genre. But some cars transcend their, for lack of a better term, carness. Some cars have a story to tell. Which got us thinking, what if we did a show that focused on what certain cars mean rather than how quick they are? What if we thought about what makes certain cars important rather than what makes them go? On Car Show, we're going to look at the vital cars, the ones that have changed how we drive and live, whose significance lies outside the scope of horsepower or miles per gallon. Because some cars are more than just a pile of metal, glass, and rubber. Some cars are rolling anthropology. This week, we're talking about the Jeep Wrangler. The Wrangler is the direct descendant of the original Jeep, created in the 40s to serve the battlefields of World War II. It was a tool, a Swiss army knife of a vehicle that's grown new blades every generation. But this gym rat of an SUV, the 392, that's less of a basic military vehicle than a kaleidoscopic journey through the asteroid belt of niche marketing. It's an absurd outgrowth of an insanely popular vehicle line. There are hardtop Wranglers and softtop Wranglers, sport versions and Rubicon trail-ready versions. There are two-doors and four-door Jeeps, even pickups. There are four-cylinder, six-cylinder, eight-cylinder, and even hybrid-powered models. There is, it seems, a Jeep for everyone. You know, the Jeep contains multitudes. There's all kinds of ways to play it. There's all kinds of facets on the original idea, but it's still a Jeep. Yeah. You know, in one sense, it's like a beach toy, a beachcomber. In another sense, it's the most serious off-roader of all time. In another sense, it's a muscle car. Uh, in another sense, it's, you know, first car for a private school kid. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think that, um... Because I do associate it with the beach, but the a car for beach driving or, like, cruising up and down the boardwalk feels so out of step with the idea of a military hauler. 180 degrees away where, from it. Where did that come from? Good question, because Sam isn't talking about the beaches of Normandy. So how do we get to this point? 
How did the Jeep go from the Ardennes forest to Planet Fitness? What energy was latent in that first Jeep that allowed it to thrive over eight decades, even as the world seems increasingly dead set against it? On this episode, we'll talk about why the Jeep Wrangler is the most American vehicle of all time. And along the way, we'll hear from folks who'll tell us what the Jeep means to them. People love talking about their Jeeps. <laughs> I feel very connected to the Americana element of Jeeps. I've always been a huge fan of the Jeeps. I just love the way they look. And I kind of thought that I should have one before I die. The seatbelt situation was insane. Um, I guess it was safe in that, like, it had a roll bar, but my, my dad drove that thing like crazy. It's a really joyful car, and there's never a top on it, and it's sort of cool, but it's not pretentious and just invokes a sense of fun to me. After the break, the rise of the Jeep. I'm Eddie Alterman, and this is Car Show. We'll be right back. The base version of the Jeep Wrangler is agricultural. It's unrefined. It likes to veer all over the place on the highway. Putting a Hemi in it, as Jeep did for this Wrangler 392, would appear to tempt fate. And yet, the 392, an $80,000 elephant on roller skates, makes a perverse kind of sense. The Jeep is everything to all people. It's a war hero, a beach buggy, an army mule, a cultural movement, a Barbie accessory, a fraternity, a sorority, and now a muscle car. You know, the cool thing about this vehicle is that it's like, sort of like nothing else on the road. You have this really short windshield that's almost in your face and totally upright. Um, you have these really square peel-off doors. You have a peel-off top. Um, you're sitting really high off the ground. You can see all four, four corners of the vehicle. Um, there's a high hip point. You're sort of up and in the air on this thing. And in this day and age, very few vehicles have that sense of uniqueness that there's really nothing else like it on the road. And I think that's a great part of its appeal. So how can something so out of step with the modern automotive environment be so popular, so varied, and so right for so many people? There really is a Jeep culture. <laughs> I get a lot of conversations with strangers, a lot of recognition and a lot of love. People, people love talking about their Jeeps. <laughs> you know, I guess you just fall for these machines and and you appreciate people who have also. Jeep sells roughly as many Wranglers as Honda sells Accords. Unlike the Honda, though, the Jeep Wrangler is an anachronism, a bulwark against the endless refinements of the car industry with its fixations on noise, emissions, fuel economy, and passenger comfort and safety. In a world where car makers are swearing off internal combustion engines for battery-powered electric vehicles, the Jeep says... Screw that free trade farmer's market NPR tote bag toting crap. 
I've got a huge V8 under the hood. I'm the proud owner of a Jeep CJ7, which I think is a car that isn't particularly snobby or inaccessible. It was something that I felt was part of a community in, in a way that you didn't even really have to intentionally tap into. It just existed. This slab-sided mule, designed for the Second World War, thumbs its nose at sophisticated luxury electric SUVs with their limited range and utility. And it outsells them by huge margins. The Wrangler, that rectilinear shape your mind conjures when you hear the word Jeep, is a remarkably durable idea, even in those eras when the vehicle itself wasn't all that durable. The Jeep brand has persisted through more than seven decades without losing its essence. Depending on who's counting, Jeep has survived nine corporate custodians and emerged stronger for it, like an organism that consumes its host. Its sales have steadily increased to roughly 200,000 vehicles a year, and it has spawned an entire range of vehicles with names like Gladiator, Patriot, Liberty. This year, a new Grand Wagoneer mega SUV emerged, broad of beam and festooned with chrome. Its sticker price can easily top $100,000. Think about that. We are at a point now where Jeeps command Mercedes-Benz money. There's really no better brand in the automotive realm except perhaps Ferrari. Jeep is to the SUV as Kleenex is to facial tissue, as Coke is to cola. As I discussed with my producer, Sam, Jeep is the eponym. It's the icon. When I was a kid, I wanted an orange Jeep Wrangler more than anything because <laughs> I thought it would be so cool to pull into the parking lot in high school in an orange Jeep Wrangler. You're not alone. And I had this, this whole image of myself, like, taking my friends to the beach on the weekend in it. Um, even though I was not, like, a beach on the weekend type of kid, I was a, like, indie movie theater on the weekend type of kid. But it just, there was something about the Wrangler that signified, like, ease and freedom to me. This is the freedom machine, right? You know, Enzo Ferrari called it America's only sports car. And, and he meant that in the pejorative. But <laughs> it really is built for a different kind of fun. And it's built to go anywhere and do anything. It's very anachronistic. Mm -hmm. And it's highly desirable. I mean, it's, you know, that toy-like quality of it. And also, I think the, the sense that you're kind of playing army guy uh, has a ton of appeal. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that. But I think that was somewhere at the center of probably my misplaced desire for one of these when I was in high school was it was a way of seeming like a cool beach guy but I'm also kind of a soldier you know <laughs> right like why do uh, young kids play with army men mm -hmm. gives them that sense of power like they're in command they're in control and there, there's a lot of that wrapped up in this vehicle a Jeep Wrangler is meant to be in the mud, off the highway, climbing steep, slick grades with its axles locked. Almost nobody does this. Only about 10 to 15% of Jeep Wrangler owners ever venture off the pavement. To most of them, off-road means parking lot. Most of its drivers will never use a fraction of the Jeep's capabilities. 
Where it shines is off the beaten path. Where its knobby tires and upright, aerodynamically inefficient bodywork are virtues, not vices. It is to the freeway as a pork sandwich is to the Passover Seder. In some respects, it's that off-road capability that makes the Wrangler so alluring. It's also the essence of the entire Jeep brand and what allows it to charge $80,000 for this one and $100,000 for a family hauler like the Grand Wagoneer. The off-roading prowess gives the brand meaning. You're buying competence, most of which you'll never use. Car marketers have a phrase for this concept of unused capacity. It's called perceived performance. It's why people want the track-ready Porsche 911 GT3 RS, even though they'll never take their car to the racetrack. Just knowing that the car can do all this heroic stuff is good enough and worth paying a premium for. It drives unlike any other car you will ever drive in your life. In retrospect, it is super impractical. I mean, like now, as a father of three, I look back, it's insane. Like, the, the seatbelt situation was insane. Um, I guess it was safe in that, like, it had a roll bar. Like, if we rolled over, there was a bar. Um, but my my dad drove that thing like crazy. And then I also, you know, sort of subsequently drove it like crazy. This Wrangler we're driving, the 392, is also a ridiculous and great muscle car. Probably closer to the chaotic undrivability and lunacy of the original muscle cars than today's Dodge Chargers and Challengers. The Wrangler is the centerpiece of the only car brand that truly cuts across all market segments and socioeconomic strata. Everyone wants a Jeep. The Jeep's abstract power lies in its authentic ties to its military roots. It needs to feel different than a Chevy Equinox or a Toyota Highlander, because it is different. It strikes me as you're describing that, that there's probably a lot of other SUVs in this class where the interior is trying to make you think, you know, that you're in a luxury sedan, even though you're actually driving a, a, a four-wheel drive machine, whereas this car is going to great lengths to remind you, like, no, no, it's still a Jeep. It's definitely a Jeep. That's right, exactly. And I think that people want that authentic experience to the extent that, you know, there is this sort of counter-movement in uh, SUVs right now toward more authentic, more legitimate, off-roady sorts of vehicles like the Bronco, like the Land Rover Defender that's just been mm-hmm. been relaunched, you know? And there's this movement away from SUVs as family cars back toward a, a more kind of rugged sensibility. But what's happened over time is because people have so loved some of the attributes of the SUV, like the high seating position, the ability to really get anything in the back, um, that they've become so popular and have made so many concessions to comfort that people sort of think of them as family cars now or minivan surrogates. It's tempting for me hearing you talk about the authenticity piece of the off-roading roots of this car to also make a connection between the fact that we as humans are spending less and less time in the real world and separating ourselves from the metaphorical bumps in the road more than ever. (laughs) Yeah, man. Sam, it's like 
people are craving experiences, and this car is an experience self-contained. Deep down, the Jeep needs to feel like an unrefined war machine. The brand's imagery is powered by that authenticity, that sense that it can dominate any terrain, that it is purpose-built for its mission, that it could charge into battle when the bad guys show up with the briefcase nukes. It's a hero, and to drive one is to assume that role. After the break, we're going to war. its pattern of life and work to meet the demand for protection. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety. Before it donned its civvies and went on sale as a passenger vehicle, the Jeep was pivotal to American success in the Second World War. And for all the influence and reach of this brand now, the peculiar thing is, at its inception, Jeep wasn't even a brand, per se. It was a type of vehicle, a general-purpose GP light truck to supply the troops, made by various manufacturers. America's vast resources are harnessed to the job of being the world arsenal for this and other democracies. Its present-day production of armaments is but a mere fraction of the great job that lies ahead. In preparation for entering the conflict, Washington knew that this war would be one of mechanized combat and that it needed a mechanical replacement for World War I's army mules. Yes, actual mules. The army needed something that could go anywhere, carrying men and weapons on and off the battlefield, something that didn't run on oats. Based on much failed testing of other light yet rugged concepts, including a stripped-down Ford Model T, army engineers settled on the basic specifications. It needed four-wheel drive in a certain minimum level of performance with loads of climbing and carrying capability. At one point, they even specified four-wheel steering so that a rear-facing driver with his own steering wheel could take control of the vehicle and reverse out of danger in the event of an ambush. The vehicle had to weigh no more than 1,300 pounds but be capable of hauling 600 pounds. And the timeline was super tight less than three months to deliver a selection of working models. In other words, the Army's expectations were totally unrealistic. It sent the bid out to some 135 manufacturers and was sure that this massive and literal call to arms would be answered in force. Only two companies submitted bids, American Bantam out of Butler, Pennsylvania, and Willis Overland out of Toledo, Ohio. Bantam won the preliminary contract, but in the end, it was the Willis design that prevailed. Ford started making them too and used the GP designation for its version of the model. Some say that the name Jeep came not from a contraction of the GP initials, but from a character in a comic strip. I couldn't confirm that. Seems more interesting to entertain the notion that the first Jeep was actually a Ford. Anyway, America got itself an innovative-for-the-time light transport vehicle that could do everything and go everywhere. The GP glided into France during the invasion of Normandy. June 6th. 
D-Day. The great plan is put to the test. First American soldiers hit the beach. It slogged through the bulge. It plied the North African sands. As the fighting develops, every means is used to hasten the removal of the wounded from the scene of battle. Wearing farm plows, it dug trenches for telephone lines. And that's to say nothing of its workaday applications. And you were saying part of the appeal um, of the traditional Wrangler was the, the flat flatness of the hood, right? Yeah. The, um, there are stories about the flatness of the hood being a place where, you know, all sorts of work got done, lunches were eaten, uh, it was an altar for chaplains to give mass on. Um, that flatness of the hood was, was sort of core to the original design. The Jeep of all trades is pressed into service and proves itself again. Which brings us to an interesting point. When we talk about the Jeep being authentic and people buying into that realness, what are we really talking about? Well, on one level, the notion of authenticity arises from functionality. The Jeep reinforces that functionality and capability at every turn, at every touch point. There are little visual military Jeep Easter eggs all over these vehicles. Tiny graphics of Army Jeeps crawling up the windshield glass and lights in the dash that read, Since 1941. That connection to its origin story is something that Jeep carefully curates. Think about Rolex watches. If you want one of the more prized models, the Submariner or maybe the Sky Dweller, it's going to cost you 10, 20, maybe even 40,000 bucks. But people are tripping over themselves to pay those prices, and the reason has less to do with the beauty of the piece or the cost of the materials than the story. The bottom line is that those Rolexes were built to do jobs, and they did those jobs either first or better than any other watch. They are chunky and clunky, and they don't often keep great time. They are not the elegant gold wristwatches that used to define success. What they telegraph is the status of action, of power, of mastery. And that functional authenticity is worth a lot to people. So it is with Jeep. Yet the Jeep has a deeper context than any timepiece. And here, finally, is the real essence of the thing. The ultimate core sample of its meaning to Americans and indeed other Western countries where it's always been sold as a luxury good. The Jeep represents a connection, not just to war, but to a specific war, the one embedded in America's consciousness as our last good war, the last war we could understand, a clear-cut conflict between right and wrong, the last war where we were unambiguously the victors and the heroes. The Jeep represents America's yearning for the simplicity and moral clarity of World War II. Think about those Jeep naming conventions for a second. Gladiator, Patriot, Liberty. Cynics might argue that they are evidence of some wild shit about the American psyche, that we have a warrior complex, that we glorify theatrical, large-scale conflicts and the war machines used in them. That may be true, but I think the impulses around the Jeep are a bit nobler than that. Through the Jeep, 
We're trying to get back to that brief moment of Pax Americana that existed in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Every war since then has only made many Americans question the justifications behind the conflicts. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq's one and two, Afghanistan. They were all opaque, distant and remote with no clear cause and effect. Proxy wars, cold wars, allegedly ideological ones. Only the attacks of 9-11 presented a threat equivalent to or exceeding that of Pearl Harbor. And in that case, we responded with an agenda and false claims of WMDs in Iraq. There's a concept in the CIA called blowback. It doesn't mean the unintended consequences of America's military actions, but rather the unintended consequences of covert operations. How effed up is that? Assassinations, regime changes, drone strikes and sanctions that impel us ever deeper into inscrutable conflicts. World War II wasn't like that. It was the first real buildup of American military might. It made us a superpower. The military-industrial complex it spawned and that President Eisenhower warned us about in 1961 on his way out of office, that was about enforcement. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. World War II built our global position everything afterward attempted to maintain and profit from it. As messed up as this sounds, the Second World War was America's feel-good war, uncomplicated and wholly embraced, a moment of unvarnished glory for our country. Watch any World War II documentary, and you'll hear old veterans talk proudly about how they killed Nazis at knife point. Fun stuff. The Jeep is our connection back to that moment. The Jeep isn't just a means of getting from point A to point B. It is a mobile emblem of freedom and independence. It's why Jeep has worked so hard to keep the Wrangler the way it has always been. And it's why that basic Jeep can fetch ever higher prices. The feeling it gives us grows more valuable the further it recedes. By way of contrast, look at the Hummer, another military off-roader, but this one has no such exalted provenance or staying power. It was not the mule of World War II, but of the Iraq Wars. General Motors canceled it as a consumer brand in 2010 and is only bringing it back now, but as an electric pickup truck. It couldn't drive away fast enough from all it represented. Once Schwarzkopf's war machine, now here to save the earth. The Jeep, however, always, always, always refers back to the Second World War. From its color palette with its olive drabs to its graphics packages with their stencils and stars. In the Jeep, 
Everyone's a victor. Everyone shares in the glory. Whether you take it to the trails, the beach, or the forest. One of the great things about owning a Jeep, I, when I drive around, it brings me a huge amount of joy. In many ways, it seems to bring enjoyment to almost everyone who sees it. Everyone wants to talk to me. Everyone wants to say hello and wave. Um, kids, you know, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, always kind of tug on their mum's or dad's hands to say, like, please, can we go and look at that car? It just seems to make everyone so happy. And, um, you know, it's smelly and it's awkward and it's not comfortable and it's kind of dangerous. But, like, it's the best thing to drive in the world. Isn't that wild? Somehow, everybody wants a Jeep. Yeah. And I think it's because it's so interlaced with the idea of being American. It's so interlaced with that identity that you'll pay any cost to be part of that story. You'll put up with this crazy, woolly highway driving behavior. It almost enhances the experience. Uh -huh. You'll put up with an $80,000 price tag to get it. You, you just want to be part of it, and it doesn't matter who you are. And this is one of those threads in the American fabric. This is one of those things that, that ties us together, this vehicle. This thing, like, feeds off our conception of ourselves as rugged individualists, go anywhere, withstand any kind of torture, do anything, and yet have fun. Be having fun the whole time, like with a smile on our face. <laughs> Authenticity, freedom, the pursuit of happiness. This is America on four wheels with an optional canvas top. show is written and hosted by me, Eddie Alterman. It's produced by Sam Dingman, Jacob Smith, and Amy Gaines. Our editor is Jen Guerra. Original music and mastering by Ben Tolliday. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney and airbrushed by Greg Lefevre. Our patron saints are Lital Malad and Justine Lang. Sources for this episode included... The Story of Jeep by Patrick R. Foster and the Jeep Owner's Bible by Moses Ludell. Special thanks to Stellantis for the insanely fun ride in the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon 392. And thanks to our Jeep owners, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Fiona Gorman, and Ryan Dilley. Car Show is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.